What's up, guys? This is Danny Langloss, and you're listening to the Leadership Excellence Podcast. Please hit that subscribe button so you never miss another episode. Consider giving us a rating or review so we can keep growing and help more people. Thank you. There are so many things that impact our ability to achieve success, but none are more important than leadership. Individuals and organizations rise and fall with leadership. We are here to help you rise. Thank you for joining us. This is the Leadership Excellence Podcast. Hello, leaders, and welcome to Leadership Excellence. My name is Danny Langloss, and today I'm joined by Jennifer Thornton, and we're going to talk about conversational intelligence, the seven deadly sins of leadership. Jennifer has developed her expertise in talent strategy and leadership professional development over her exciting 20-plus year career as an HR professional. She's led international teams, international teams across greater China, Mexico, the UK, and the US to expand into new markets managing franchise retailers, and developing key strategic partnerships, all while exceeding business objectives and financial results. The rapid growth of her consulting firm, 304 Coaching, has been largely due to Jennifer's unconventional approach to building innovative workforce development solutions for companies who are facing breakthrough growth and accelerated hiring patterns. She is a sought-after business strategist specializing in startups and large value-based organizations. She assists her clients in building talent strategies that complement their business strategies to ensure exponential growth. Jennifer, welcome to the Leadership Excellence Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here. You know, when we first met and talked, I was just blown away by your insights, by your experience. Talk to me just a little bit. You've led international teams across China, Mexico, the UK, the US. Talk to us a little bit about your journey. So my journey is probably not traditional that, you know, most people would think of how I ended up, you know, in all these wonderful foreign countries working. I actually worked in retail my entire career. I, as a young girl, wanted to work at the mall and dreams do come true. Guess what? I got to work at the mall and I worked my way up through the operation side of a large global retailer. And um, that was the first part of my career, kind of that first half. And then the second half of my career, I jumped into HR and did all different types of practices within that HR portfolio. And then one day I get this call out of nowhere and it's my chief HR, chief HR officer. And he says, Hey, you want to go to Hong Kong for a while? I'm like, why? Um, we're not real sure. We're going to buy back our stores there and we don't really know what we're getting into and we don't know what's going to happen. So can you just go over there and figure it out? I was like, sure. And so off I went, you know, always say yes. You never know what, you know, is on the other side of that. And that started an incredible um, third career of mine, and that was international HR. And so we, you know, I um, assisted our organization in opening um, stores in Hong Kong, Greater China, Mexico, London. Um, I then, you know, put our HR um, groups in those markets and then continue to manage them um, once we were up and running. And so that was, you know, most of my adult life. And then a few years ago, I kind of woke up um, and thought, you know what, it's time to try something new. It's been an incredible ride. And I always had a passion for talent strategies because I know businesses succeed and fail on talent. And so I came up with the concept with 304 Coaching, which is what I do today as the CEO and founder. And we help organizations with talent strategy so that their business is successful. Wow. Incredible. What a journey. How exciting. You it know, I, a I've, fun. I've been to Mexico on vacation, like Cancun or like 
Cabo once. I don't even do that very often, but here you are over in the UK and China doing things in Hong Kong. The experiences you've had, and it makes sense because when we talk, like I said, I was just so blown away by you. Uh, so we're going to focus in today on conversational intelligence, the seven deadly sins of leadership. So what is conversational intelligence? So conversation intelligence is a practice and it, it really helps leaders start to tell the truth. And in our business world, we don't tell the truth enough. And when we do tell the truth, we do it out of fear. So it doesn't come out quite so great. <laughs> and so conversation intelligence helps us understand the neuroscience of the mind and how our chemical reactions start to fire off when we're engaging in conversations with people in the workplace. And I studied under an amazing woman, Judith Glacier, and she spent 40 years studying the neuroscience of the mind in the workplace and how it impacted business results. And, you know, with conversation intelligence, we teach executives how to create psychological safety in the workplace by still telling the truth. You know, this isn't about squishy feely, you know, making sure everyone, you know, sings kumbaya. This is about being honest. This is about doing it in a way that creates trust and really learning how to work with the mind versus against it. Because a lot of the ways we were taught to lead actually creates fear in people and, you know, changing the way we talk and changing the way we ask questions, all of that gets better business results, but, and we do it right. It also creates trust and safety within our teams. Wow. Yeah. That's, I tell you, psychological safety, it's, it's such a big concept. You're seeing so much more on it these days. We've created a framework called employee engagement, 10 X, the seven pillars of ownership. And pillar one is psychological safety. And if people don't feel safe if they don't feel comfortable if they don't you know if if they're if they're worried that people are going to be judging them or shaming them or if there's fear they're going to stay in that little box in that small cage and they're never going to really get out spread their wings and bring everything it is they have to bring to the organization they're definitely not going to become an owner you know somebody who's a purpose driven person that is doing things that's important to them or they're always trying to make things at least 1% better every day. Awesome. 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 That sounds great. So, so let's talk, how, talk about this addiction to being right and how it negatively influences relationships and results. So what's interesting, when you start to study the neuroscience of the mind and how the chemicals start to respond and react, one thing that we know through research is we can get addicted to being right. And so when we're right and we make a great decision or we do something and our boss says, great job, it feels good, right? And who doesn't want to feel good? You get a fantastic little dopamine hit. But what we know about addiction is it is a dopamine hit. And so if you're addicted to sugar or alcohol or any addiction, shopping, you know, one of my favorite dopamine hits, a little sh retail shopping or retail therapy. My wife's you, as well. <laughs> it's a great one. Um, and you get this dopamine hit. And we know that with addictions, the more you, you know, get that dopamine hit, the more you need of it to get that same level of high. Being right is the exact same thing. In fact, if you, you know, attach all the little neuro things to someone's brain and you looked at the screen and you gave someone who was addicted to sugar or, you know, alcohol or being right and you gave them their drug of choice, 
their brain fires off in the exact same way. You wouldn't be able to tell what addiction they have. The brain fires off the same way. And so what happens is when we have people who, um, oftentimes these people who are addicted to write, they were really successful earlier in their career. They were kind of that superstar that kind of shot up quickly because they were, they were right a lot. And that was fantastic. They did, re did really good things for their career. But over time, they got addicted to that. And, you know, that doesn't look great in today's world, you know, when you're trying to manage and you're addicted to your own views and your team's not able to tell you the truth. Wow. Yeah, 100%. You know, it is funny how when you come into an organization, I think about when I came into the police department here in Dixon, and you look at the sergeant, the supervisor, and early on before you really understand what leadership is or what it's about, it's like, you know, you know, one day I'll be in that position. And I'll get to tell people what to do, you know, and one day everybody will just listen to what it is I have to say. And boy, is it not like that at all? Not at all. And I could see, you know, I could see how this pattern, this addicted to being right, this, this, you know, you want that feedback and the way that feels and that dopamine hit, but Really, when you become a leader, everything shifts, that, that mindset, everything shifts from me to we. It's all about service and sacrifice and many times being misunderstood and maybe taking shots that don't belong to come your way, but you know, people don't have all the information. So people, it would seem to me like the people addicted to being right are going to be very me-focused and are going to be based in a lot of power and control. So is this, is this idea and concept that's really tied in to the seven deadly sins of leadership? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think we all, if you're listening, you probably kind of imagine that person that you worked with really early in your career and they were collaborative and really open-minded and they were amazing and you loved working with them. And then over time, you're like, I don't even recognize this person anymore. And they will fight over the color of a crayon. And that's really kind of, you know, when you start to know there's some issues when, you know, someone will just go to the ground and fight over their, you know, just because they want to be right, even in their gut when they know they're not right. And what happens is, you know, it starts to change how they interact with people. And so, you know, we, you know, the fun kind of play on the, de de the seven deadly sins, um, you know, you think about pride. And when you are addicted to being right, you're so prideful of your own ideas that right or wrong, you'll sink that ship because your, your ideas are right. And, you know, when someone comes to you and you're like, and says, Hey, you know, I think that might not be the best direction, or here's what our customers are saying. And I think that we've missed something here. Let's look at this again. And they're like, Nope. And they're so prideful of their own ideas that they can't see the truth. Yeah, that that's a that's a really tough thing, and that's a you just don't want to work for somebody like that. Yeah. And you know, taking pride in the work you do is one thing, but when you become a leader, you take pride in the way you serve others, right? The yeah. the shift is completely different. Dr. Charlie Cartwright, I had him on the podcast um, about a month ago, maybe a couple months ago, and he also talked about he talked about this concept. He said, "Do you want to be right, or do you want to be effective?" And so I think a couple things for leaders listening to this. One is if we're addicted to being right and we've always got to be right, then we're going to shut down our entire organization. Like we're just going to shut it down. However, when, when you actually are right and maybe you aren't addicted to being right, you've also got to ask that question, would I rather be right or would I rather be effective? 
And that was a really powerful statement that he'd shared um, as, as we were talking about it because when we're looking at what's best for the organization, most of the time that isn't you being right and showing everybody how smart you are. Yeah. And a lot of time it shows up, shows up in greed, which is another one of those seven deadly sins. And, you know, there, um, that greed is like, you know, I need more and more. Maybe that's more money, more accolades, more of whatever. Um, and oftentimes when people are really deep in that addiction to being right, they will make some financial decisions that aren't great, but it protects their addiction. And when the financial decisions come to fruition and they're not, they're not positive and they are damaging, they'll never take credit for it because their decision was right. It wasn't wrong. Someone else messed it up. Someone else made a bad decision and they get, they get very greedy oftentimes around, um, you know, just that financial decision. Um, and they maybe sometimes make really bold and risky decisions, but when it goes south, because they're so addicted to their own views, it's never their problem. Always someone else on their team. And I've seen leaders who are truly addicted to being right, make some really, you know, risky financial decisions. And when they don't go their way, all of a sudden it's like some random person in finances problem. They did something wrong or they didn't negotiate the right contract or they didn't get the vendor pricing. And I'm like, no, this is a bigger decision than a vendor pricing. <laughs> um, but they will find a way to make sure that they were right and everyone else was wrong. It, one of the things that really intrigues me about this conversation is that a lot of times we talk about what are the right ways to do things, right? What does great leadership look like? And sometimes when we see those things, they're hard to replicate. How do they do that? But when we talk about what I really enjoy about this conversation, what I've really been looking forward to is when you look at the negative qualities of leaders, those things, once we identify them, and we're honest with ourselves, right? We had that honest conversation, that look in the mirror. We can eliminate the negative qualities of, of bad leaders. And they're not, I mean, people that do these things, they're not leaders, they're bosses, right? right. Um, and it's so much easier to eliminate the bad stuff. You know, coming up through my career, I had a lot of good leaders, but I had a lot of bad bosses. And I remember saying to myself, like, if, if I ever get promoted, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to do that. And early in my career, when I became a sergeant, just eliminating those things that were destroying the organization, that were putting people in boxes. What was left was pretty decent, right? And then there was so much to learn and grow since that point. So I, I really love that. The other thing about what you were saying, it's just the, it's the opposite of humility, of mm -hmm. vulnerability, right? It's the opposite of the, the concept that when something goes right, it's always the credit of the team. And when something goes wrong, it's always owned by the leader. So, so we've talked about pride, greed. Where do you want to go next? Oh, one of my favorite is wrath. And so one of the things that when I'm working with an executive and we're trying to kind of test the theory, do you like being right? Maybe a little too often. So one of the things I have the executive do is I have them ask their team a really difficult question and we watch the response. And oftentimes you see everyone in the room get this like horrible, like panic stricken look on their face. They're all looking at each other and they, they just, then they just stare at the boss, right? Not a leader, the boss. And they're waiting to be told how to think. 
And when that happens, we've lost all hope for that organization. You know, people who are experts in their field no longer are thinking. And the reason why is because of the wrath. You know, when you do not, um, when you tell the truth, but it jeopardizes the boss's views or, and we've all been there where we didn't want to tell the truth because we didn't want to get in trouble for the truth. Um, you know, and when you get in trouble for being honest in the workplace about what really is going on with a business, that's critical. I mean, that will really shut things down. And, you know, that's one of the ones that when I see that coming and, you know, you're being told how to think, um, no matter who you are or what position you have, I, I know we're in trouble. Wow. Yeah. In a lot of trouble, right? Like mm -hmm. it, the idea you can save a ton on payroll if you lead like this. Yeah. Uh, because you don't need anybody else because yeah. you're not, you're not utilizing their potential at all. You talk about psychological safety, which you spoke about kind of right away. This, this will destroy psychological safety when all these things really will destroy psychological safety in, in a hurry. The, the truth jeopardizing the boss's views, an area where everybody's just going to agree and be a, a yes man or a yes woman and, and go with the flow and put in their time and get out of there as, as soon as they can. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, that asking the question, one of the things that we teach in conversation intelligence is asking questions you don't have the answer to. And that is really simple to say and hard to do. And that's one of the things that we talk about. You know, if you're asking questions and you're expecting a specific answer, then you're telling people how to think. Okay. Yeah. There's so much power in asking questions. It's, it's listening and asking questions are two of our most powerful communication tools. Cause when we ask people questions, like we genuinely want their feedback and input, we say to them, I trust you. You, I respect you. You're important. You have value. You belong, right? All things that are really, really powerful. Such a, such a powerful communication tool. Love that. What's next? Um, so envy, um, so envy is a fun one, um, to talk about and, you know, you know, that person we all have in our mind now that we're like, oh my gosh, I know this person, right? So chances are this person chased status. Chances are this person wanted to look like the smartest person in the room. Um, chances are that they wanted people to envy them, you know, look at me, look what I've done, look at all this stuff. And, you know, that again starts to validate their addiction because I've been so right that I have, I have at this status or I've collected these big fancy toys or whatever that person wants to, you know, kind of say status is and they want people to envy them and, um, you know, kind of, you know, validate their, their addiction to being right. So this one has to do about wanting people to envy them, not being envious of other people. Yes. Yeah, so it's kind of the flip side of how you typically think about it, but they, they definitely usually chase status. Wow. Yeah. That's so dangerous. I so know. Dangerous. Right. But if you think about those people that you've worked with and you're wondering about those people, you know, they, they like their title on their desk. You know, they, they like to drive that big car, fancy car. You know, the person that I always, that comes to mind for me. And when I think about this that I worked with for years, um, he, you know, um, always had like the flashiest vintage, bright colored, like yellow and red vintage race, like 
like really fancy Corvettes and cars. And, you know, that was one of his pieces. Um, and he loved to speed around town in those fancy cars. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense when you talk about this addiction to being right uh, and to be the center of all the attention and to have everybody looking at you and falling and bowing to your feet and being envious of everything that you have. Such a, such a dangerous, dangerous quality uh, of, of any boss, any boss for sure. What's number five? And so then lust kind of falls off of that. And so, you know, again, it's that lust for recognition and that need to be recognized. And you kind of spoke a little bit about it earlier. It's those people who take credit for when it goes well, <laughs> takes everyone's credit <laughs> for when it goes well, yeah. but they have this lust for recognition. Um, because again, that recognition is the dopamine hit. When we get recognized, because typically we're being recognized for something good, um, then that feeds that dopamine hit. And so if you need, you know, a heavy amount of that, then you, you need a lot of recognition, a lot of like, good job and great idea. And how many times have we said to someone, just make your boss think it's their idea. And oh, yeah. Get it through, right? Well, you're basically kind of feeding into this whole concept. You're, you're taking it and instead of, you know, having an upfront conversation, you're being kind of passive aggressive about it. Um, because you're, you're working within their, um, their problems. You're not being honest about where the business needs to go or what you need to tell the truth about with the business. No, absolutely. So when I hear this being talked about, I, I think, I, I think two things. So what's the difference between somebody who suffers from lust and somebody just because their personality needs affirmation? You know, I think that it depends on where it comes from um, and why that person needs affirmation. And, you know, they are, they can be, they can be together and be in the same, you know, situation, but they can also be separate. Um, and if you are an individual, or you know, an individual that needs a lot of recognition, there's a reason why. And oftentimes it's because of that's how you counteract fear. And so if I need a lot of recognition, it's because my fear mechanism, the fear, your primitive brain says, if I get recognized, then I'm safe. And so it's a way for that person to turn fear off. And that's dangerous. You want to be able to turn the fear that happens. You know, fear is just a chemical reaction. That is all it is. There, and your brain doesn't really know the difference between a snake on your leg and my boss is mad at me. It's just the same chemical. And so when we find ways that aren't healthy to counteract that fear chemical, um, it can be dangerous. And so I, you know, one of the things I work with with executives is we just have to get really comfortable with fear, recognizing what that is, only a chemical reaction, and then how do we want to move forward? Because when your primitive brain is turned on, your prefrontal cortex actually shuts down because your body's in survival mode. And your prefrontal cortex is where ideas come from, collaboration, innovation, everything that you want to happen in the workplace gets turned off as soon as the fear chemical kicks in. Wow. You know, as I do, anybody listen to the podcast knows I take a lot of notes um, as as we're talking. Uh, 
So one, I can come back because so many different great exchanges happen and dive deeper into them. And, and two, then at the end, being able to recap everything. because we talk about just so many incredible things. Everybody's adding so much value and I'm, I'm really enjoying our conversation today, Jennifer. Um, one, one of the things I think about is I hear you talking about this lust. And so I'm going to not say lust. My comments are more towards affirmation mm-hmm. are, you know, some people's confidence and their self-worth comes from that external validation. And yes. so I think as, as leaders, as we work with our team members, we need to understand the difference in, in what it is. And we're talking about the seven deadly sins of leadership. So by the time you're in that level of an organization, hopefully there are, you do have some confidence and you become more grounded and, you know, have some more internal validation mechanisms going, some, some healthier things than the external but, but it is important when you look at this one to, to try to understand where it's coming from. You know, is it, is it somebody that wants to drive the nicest car so everybody's looking at them and ooh and on and, and, yeah. and those guys? Is it somebody that's always doing things just for recognition? Or is it somebody that legitimately struggling with, with confidence that needs a lot of external validation? And then how do we help them kind of reshift that and get, get a little healthier in that regard. So just really interesting, just different thoughts that were popping into my mind as I'm thinking about, you know, leading each team member individually. Um, Yeah. And really understanding, you know, just before we got on this um, interview, I was talking with um, an executive and um, there's, there's been some changes, you know, person leaving and the person reporting to that person, you know, is, you know, she was saying, you know, he's really timid and he's, you know, he's not that person I interviewed and, you know, I'm really concerned. He's just, you know, he's not showing up, you know, and she's getting upset about his performance. And my question was, sounds like he's in fear. Where do you think that fear is coming from? And she was like, oh, well, I guess it's because he's now reporting to the CEO and there's not a layer in between and his boss didn't train him on the stuff I thought he was doing and he, he doesn't know how to do it. I'm like, okay, that's pretty fearful. Like, you know, like that's kind of fear. What if you backed down and said, Hey, I understand you didn't get what you wanted or needed. I want to provide that to you and gave him the space to learn what you need him to know so that he can then show up and be the person without fear. But if you're going to punish him for not knowing what his boss didn't teach him, then you're right. He's going to be acting in fear and he'll never be the employee you want. So this just opened the door to a whole nother side. I was just working with somebody on, on this idea and concept a couple of weeks ago, something we train our leadership team. Whenever there's a problem, whenever there's a performance issue, the first question we have to ask is what part of the problem am I? Everybody is so quick to talk about punishment or I need to have this come to Jesus conversation or, or Hey, I mean, people that really kind of know their stuff, right? Like, Hey, let's use a performance improvement plan, which I'm all for them. Yeah. If people aren't getting it, but but very few people look at a situation and a problem and start with what part of the problem am I, right? And, and then I think, you know, caring and compassion are two of my values that guide my leadership, you know, saying, you know, Jennifer, I've noticed this lately. Is there something going on at home? Is there something happening here at work? Do you feel like you're equipped with the right tools? Hey, I've noticed that. And Start, seek first to understand before being understood like Covey talks about yeah. and, and eliminate ourselves. Make sure that we are fully giving the tools and giving the support that, that our team members need. 
Because a lot of times, honestly, more often than not, when I've helped people through these situations, the problems lied with the supervisor or the leader. Very little lied with the team member. You know, once we gave them the tools and support they needed and, and turned them loose and helped build that confidence, let them know we had their back and there was high levels of psychological safety, it changes everything. Yeah. And it's because they move, you know, when there's that safety, your primitive brain starts to turn off and your prefrontal cortex turns on. And that is the key. And where we learn is also in the prefrontal cortex. So you don't want it. Like as a leader, your, if your only goal every day was to keep people out of fear and to keep them in a place where they can collaborate, learn, and be innovative through your language and the way that you, and, and this is exactly what conversation intelligence is all about. It's about keeping people using the piece of their brain that drives the business. It makes people happy too, right? So it's a win-win. Everyone wins in this situation. But that's one of the pieces of it is asking, you know, what do I own in this situation? And, and I think it's really important. And, you know, it's some, so, sometimes it's our language, simple things make a difference. You know, one of my things, I always watch people, you know, they hire some new person and they want them to come in and do all this. And I want you to come in and mix things up. And then after 30 days, they walk into your office, and they have all these ideas and you go, yeah, we've tried those before. We don't really want to do them. And you've basically just told this person, I'm not cool with ideas. I'm not cool with change. I just need you to go to your desk and be quiet and do what I tell you to do. I mean, that's, you know, and how many times has someone said, yeah, we've tried that. We don't want to do it. Yeah. But what if we said, you know what, we've tried that in the past. It didn't work, but it's a new time. It's a new day. You're a new person. How do you see this happening? Absolutely. If, if you want people to be creative, have ideas. If you want them to be innovative, bring those ideas to life, you've got to create that environment. And, you know, we really didn't have that environment when I became the police chief. We really changed and shaped the culture. We created a great leadership team, you know, started speaking with one voice. But one of the strategies we had was let's find a way to say yes. When people come with ideas, we've got to find a way to say yes. You've got to give people at least some minor wins. And, and, and even if it isn't a full yes, like how can we do a partial yes or how can they work through it with us with that idea and spend that extra time? So if there's a no, they're the one that says, you know what, maybe this isn't as good idea as I thought and they come to the no. I mean, that's how you create inclusive environments full of creativity, innovation, people, ownership, you know, and, and so no, love, love this conversation and kind of where it's, where it's kind of gone to because there's so many different incredible strategies that are coming from it. Yeah. And if so, someone comes to you with a really crazy idea, all you have to say is, you know what, that's pretty out there and I don't see it, but sell me on it. Yeah. And as they sell you on it, you either, well, they can either show up and go, you know what, this might be a little crazy or you may learn something new. They may change your mind and opening up and being honest and saying, I don't see it, but I'm open to you changing my mind. Sell me on it. That's when you start to learn and that's when people learn how to really think through their concepts and think through their ideas because they know they're going to have to have a plan and explain them to you. They just can't come in with, you know, some crazy idea, but you know, how fun is it to have someone change your mind mm -hmm. and open up that conversation and just good stuff comes out of it. And at the end of the day, as long as we don't just say no, right. Yeah. And keep shutting people down. The fact that somebody was heard, their voice was heard, their idea was heard, that means so much. That means so much to them because it says you care about them, you respect them, you trust them, they belong. 
They're an important part of the team. You took that time. I think as leaders, we don't understand. And I struggled with this for a while because I'm just doing my thing as, as a leader, right? I didn't become the police chief or now the city manager to be in charge. And so I don't ever look at myself as the police chief or the city manager. And I never took a step back until it was kind of pointed out to me like, hey, when, when somebody from the street comes in, one of the officers or one of the line workers within public works, and you spend that 10 minutes of time with them and you truly care, like they're not used to that. And I know you don't understand that, Danny, because you don't look at yourself that way, but this is how it is. And so keep doing that. And it is, as the leaders, I think the very best leaders don't see themselves like that. So we got to point that thing out because it does. It just means so much. It means the world. And every time you um, have a exchange with someone on your team, their brain and yours are imprinting experiences. And your brain's only job, it's got one job, keep you safe, keep you alive. That's all it does. So it's collecting knowledge and evidence of how you need to interact with someone to stay safe. And so if you have someone come to you, nope, and you tell them no. And the next time they come to you and you tell them no again. And the third time you come to them and you tell them no, their imprint is this person doesn't ever say yes, I give up. Yeah. Because your history. And so, you know, when we get within about 10 feet of someone, our subconscious starts firing off chemicals. Like, is this a safe person? Is this not a safe person? You know, is this person going to threaten my, you know, you know, judge me? Like, all of that history, whether we know it or not, we don't know. I mean, it's that subconscious, our brain's firing off. So we have to think about how have we imprinted a relationship with the people around us because they are responding to us because of how we responded to them and how we created that imprint. Yeah, I, I love how you're bringing science into this conversation because this is, this is science. Mm -hmm. This is, this yeah. is fact, right? You have an incredible background in this area, which actually in another time, if you're up for it, I'd love to dig, dig deeper just in that yeah. side, because I think wow. that's something that we begin to understand and, oh, we're good with people. But when you truly know what it is and you truly understand the science, then the way you're able to effectively help people reach their full potential, it changes everything. So we're talking about Jennifer Thornton. We're talking about uh, the seven deadly sins of leadership right now in this part of the conversation. So we've talked about pride, greed, wrath, envy, and lust. What's number six? So gluttony. And so, you know, gluttony is when we like a lot of it, right? And so our gluttony is that dopamine hit. We're a glutton for it. We will do whatever it takes to get more of our drug of choice. And, um, you know, we all, you know, have, you know, known someone in our life with addiction and we know they're willing to go to the ends of the earth for it. And so that gluttony is just all that dopamine hit that they want. Wow. And how does it work in this situation? Because, you know, with addiction, which you know, one of my passions is helping people with substance use disorder. Um, and what I've noticed with people, whether it's, you know, heroin or whether it's meth or whether it's cocaine like the amount that got them there last time or last week doesn't get them there now. Does that ramp up like that um, Absolutely. and manifest? Yeah. And it's, you know, you, and if you've, especially if you've worked with someone a long period of time and you've watched them change and um, you know, if I, you know, was right and I kind of skated on the edges, but I still got it through and, you know, I still asserted myself and I told everyone how to think and it came out good, then yeah, the next time 
I'm going to be that much more forceful. And, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking to watch leaders. And I've seen people just, I mean, really crash and burn their careers over this crash companies you know, put them, wow. put their company out of business because they couldn't see the truth. And, you know, I think Kodak is a great example of that. You know, Kodak, they had the first digital camera. And when um, the digital camera was brought to them, the board was, or the, you know, all the bosses were like, that's silly. Like who would like people want to print their pictures. No one would ever want to look at their pictures on their TV set. That's weird. No, no one would want that. And then marketing said, you know what? We could probably figure out how to sell this to consumers, but we don't want to hurt our film sales. So they got a patent for it. And Kodak made a ton of money off that patent until 2012 when the patent ran out. They filed bankruptcy right after that. But they could, I mean, but they could not see the truth when the, when the team who created that came to them and said, here's where we think the cameras are going. They were like, nope, you're wrong. We're right. And we all know what happened with Kodak after that. But what if they had listened? What if they had been the first digital camera? And that was in the 70s that it was brought to them. Wow. What a story. Yeah, we all know what the result of that was. Yep. And we all see uh, what the result of, of other companies are that have taken full advantage of that space. Wow, powerful story. What's number seven? So the last one I love to talk about is sloth. And, you know, sloth means we're being pretty lazy. But when you're addicted to write, what you typically do is you're not willing to learn everyone's job in the office, but by gosh, you're willing to tell them how to do it. And, you know, it's like, I'm just going to sit in my desk and I'm going to judge all day. I'm not going to do any of the work because I'm so smart and I'm so right, but I'm going to judge you. I'm going to tell you how to do it. And I'm really excited to tell you when you did it wrong, if you didn't do it the way I thought you should, even though I have no experience in that area and I hired you as an expert, I still want you to do it my way, but I'm not going to physically do it. And so, you know, I think we all know that person who seems to have an opinion about how everyone should do their job, even though they have no idea how to do it. Yeah. That is terrible. You talk about some annoying things. And you know what's funny? Like, <laughs> as you talk, and I'm not going to blurt any names out. Uh, I know it's hard sometimes, right? Because you've got I know. people in your brain right now. You know who you're thinking about. Yeah. They're, they're, just, they're just firing out. And, and you think to yourself, when is the time, when's the last time you actually did the job? Yeah. Mm -hmm. in, in a lot of times, people get to this level of arrogance, right? This addiction to being right, these seven deadly sins. And they get so out of touch with it that as they get farther and farther out of touch with it, they get farther and farther out of touch with what's going on. And then it's obvious even to brand new people who haven't even been around very long that they got no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. No idea. Mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. we, don't, we no longer operate in a day where people respect titles, where people give just trust and respect because you're in a position of authority. Matter of fact, I think we're in a day where when you get in those positions, you got to earn it even more. I think you're absolutely right. Yes. And, you know, I started to see the shift and transition, you know, when, because the boomers, you know, and, and maybe one of the greatest, you know, one of the, the greatest generations, so many incredible accomplishments, but the, the respect that they had for position, for title, for authority, they would go with the flow. They wouldn't like it. You know, they, you, you know, maybe you didn't get their full potential out of them, but with Gen X, that they're not going to with the millennials and with Gen Z, they're definitely not going to. And, and I hear so much from leaders struggling with the millennials 
and and now Gen Z, and I'm like, you got to take a look in the mirror. Like you can't lead lazy. You know, they're they're not going to walk in and be like, oh, you know, Danny's here. You know what I mean? No, you will earn their trust and respect, mm-hmm. just like the coworker, and 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 they expect to have to earn yours. And it's a major major difference. I remember um, talking about how the millennials can be a major solve to a lot of the problems in policing. We're talking about substance use disorder. And I kind of went on about it and, and some different things. And I got off the stage and I, and I walked down and this, this police captain from a, a major metropolitan city uh, walked up to me, and said, do you really believe that shit you were saying on the stage? <laughs> and I was I like, yeah, I do. <laughs> so we had a great conversation and I shared a bunch of things with them. And I, I don't know that he was 100% convinced, but he was at least willing to look at it, look at it a different, a different way. And, and the other thing, boy, judgment just wow. destroys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what a great destroy. So let me ask you this. Okay. So, so we've walked through the seven deadly sins of leadership. How often do you find that, that you get to a point like if somebody's got three of these, they probably got six or seven of them. Like how hard is it? to go in and work with people and make some of these changes? What's that look like? So, you know, I think all of us have been guilty of something on this list at one time or another in some degree, right? We're all human. But then when I work with people who really truly are knee deep in this, it is damaging their organization, damaging their relationships, and I'm brought in to work with them, they're usually not real excited, um, you know, to be honest, you know, because they're right. So why would they need any help? Oftentimes I find though that these individuals as every addiction, they hit bottom and that's either a financial crisis, a relationship, like there's a crisis and they're done and they recognize that how they're leading and what they're doing. They may not have this language and understand what's going on. They may not understand this addiction. They just know that they're angry and they're mad at everyone, and they think everyone's stupid, and they hate everyone. Like, they just know all of these feelings. And so when someone truly is starting to hit bottom, and I come in and work with them, and I start to show them, here's what's going on chemically with you, there's a relief in them, because now they know what to do with this. And they start to be able to take it apart and start to, you know, um, you know, repair the relationships and change who they are. And if you have these tendencies at work, let's face it, you probably act this way at home. Yeah. And if we can, you know, I always say leadership doesn't end at the door. When someone leaves to go home to their family, how you made them feel that day oh, impacts man. their relationships at dinner. Then, you know, if dad's a lot of fun at home at dinner, then the son's going to be like more excited to do the homework and do this and that. But man, if your dad or mom comes home and they're beaten and they're just like tired and they hated their day, you're going to feel bad. Like, you know, we impact communities through leadership and, and it just doesn't stop at the door. And, you know, we have to think about how we impact society. I mean, this is a whole nother podcast conversation. You know, you talk about the great responsibility of leadership and our impact on people's lives and the research out there about if you've got a bad boss that displays these things, we're talking about the significant increase in health-related problems, um, the the quality of life issues, divorces, their own substance use problems. Yeah. Like we, we, we are setting the tone 
for the, the quality of life and the life experience, not of just our team member, but of everybody close to them. And, and that's an incredible responsibility that I don't think, that I, that I know many leaders don't even look at. I mean, now we're starting to talk a lot about this concept of leading the whole person, right? And when you understand that concept, and it's a whole other podcast again, you really start to get that impact because you just don't walk out the door and all that falls off your back. No more than when you're, when you're having issues in your marriage or financial troubles or something went wrong with your kid, no more than can you just walk into the door of your organization and act like that hasn't happened. Yeah. And so there's the, wow, powerful, powerful. How about, uh, how about we start wrapping it up on this question? And then if there's anything else that, that I didn't get to or that you wanted to get out, you just throw it out there because I've been taking a ton of notes, learning so much. Jennifer, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Uh, what's a common power play that keeps teams from realizing their business goals? Oh, so one of the things that I find, and it's, it's all fear-based. And so it's interesting, you know, I think early in our career, we think we're going to become an executive. I'm going to be the EVP or I'm going to be the chief this or that, and I'm going to just wake up every day and I'm never going to worry about my job or whatever. I find that the fear level in executives is typically higher. The stakes are higher. The risk are higher. You have to play at a different level. And one of the things that I think is really dangerous is that to because we're in fear and we start to protect ourselves and we protect our team, right? Because our team's results are our results at that level. We start to um, fight for our own needs and our own team over the greater good of the organization. And so you put, you know, all of those executives around a table and you say, okay, here is the problem. You know, our sales are down 10%. No one says, let's all talk about how we own that. Everyone starts to say, well, you know, marketing, they didn't do that. Well, you know, it wasn't my fault that we didn't get that. You know, you know, logistics didn't get the product. Like, everyone starts to finger blame. And that power play is so dangerous. But what if it was, we're down, we own this. Everyone talk about the, what your team, how your team owns this, because we all own a piece of it and what your team is going to do and, and what are ideas you have for other teams. And you actually worked it out. But instead, it's just fear and ego all day long. Fear and ego all day long. Uh, for, for people who really want to dive more in that. So when I talk about ownership and the seven pillars of ownership, I'm talking about somebody coming to work, set on fire, committed to an organization and a purpose, and doing what they do because they love it. They do it for them. This kind of ownership is an accountability type of ownership. So I just want to make the distinction for the listeners. If you want to dive more into that, uh, most of you probably heard about it, but Jacko Willick uh, and one of his Navy SEAL partners wrote Extreme Ownership, an incredible, incredible book that's all about this last part of the conversation. Um, so if you haven't already checked that out, check it out. I know uh, Walmart corporate uh, bought the book and gave it to all their vice presidents and all their building managers and issued it as mandatory reading. Like God. that's how, that's how good this thing is. I don't know if you have a chance to check it out yet. Anything else, any call to action, any, you know, any final thoughts as we, as we begin to move, move on our way out of this? Yeah. So I think your the call to action is, you know, when you walk into your, you know, your place of employment, you know, the next time after you've listened to the show, what I want you to do is I want you to start watching your people's responses 
and start to play with your language. Start to play with questions. Start to ask questions you truly do not know the answer to. And just see how things start to change for you. Start to see the creative ideas that come out. And we have um, several free resources on our website at 304coaching.com. One of my favorite resources is how to create innovation in a meeting. And so we have an entire you know, process um, that we have that you can download there and learn how to set up a meeting where we're focusing on the prefrontal cortex and removing fear so we really can innovate and drive the business in a great way. Love that. So, so powerful. So where's the best place? Are you posting daily on, on LinkedIn? I know that we become friends, you know, fairly recently. Where's the best place for somebody to follow you if they want to see some daily or multiple times a week inspirations or is the best place to go to the website? So you definitely can go to the website. There's a ton of free resources there. But um, yes, I love to continue the conversations live um, on LinkedIn. That's where we post all of our, um, you know, our tips and ideas and questions. The questions I don't know the answers to. I throw a lot of questions out I don't know the answers to on social media. Um, and I learn from you guys. Um, but yes, connect with me on LinkedIn. You can find me at Jen Thornton ACC. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And so for, for people... Um, who've been following the podcast uh, already know this, but if you don't, in the details in the description of the podcast, I will have direct links to Jen's website, to her LinkedIn, anything else that she provides me with, so that way you can stay in contact with her. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. It was so much fun. And yeah, let's do more shows. Let's do more shows. Yeah, I got a couple different ideas that I want to talk to you about. So I think I think that could be a ton of fun. So Jennifer Thornton and I have been talking about conversational intelligence, the seven deadly sins of leadership, pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttery, sloth. A couple I want to add, jealousy, retaliation, and revenge. And retaliation happens immediately. Revenge is one of those things people talk about as a dish best served cold. And these things destroy leaders. If you're doing these things, you're not leading. Uh, you're, you're a boss. You're not who you want to be, especially if you're listening to this podcast. And if you see somebody who's struggling, another leader within your organization, and you know they're a good person, uh, you know, reach out to them. Talk to them. You know, give them some help. Follow Jen. You know, reach out because she's really helping people. Um, and do an incredible, incredible work. Again, 304 Coaching, and it was 304coaching.com, right? Correct, yes. All right. To our listeners, uh, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate you tuning in. Please hit the subscribe button. Give us a rating. Give us a review so we can reach people more organically. We have started a mailing list. It's something new. We promise not to overwhelm you with information, but in the podcast description, if you go to the website, you can sign up for that. Uh, we're around the holidays. This will release just after the holidays. So we hope everybody had a great holiday. And remember, always be committed to excellence.